Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Mike Puikin, Karee Ali Lasana, Rosalind Brown, and Nora Brooks Blakely. You will now hear Mike Puikin provide introductions. Welcome to the Gwendolyn Brooks 100th Anniversary Tribute. My name is Mike Puikin. I'm a poet. I'm also on the board of the Guild Literary Complex. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Gwendolyn Brooks's relationship with the Guild Literary Complex. Uh, if anybody would like more information, I'll have some flyers up here uh, after, the, after the panel. Five years ago, the Guild Literary Complex came up with the idea to put on an all-day tribute to Gwendolyn Brooks. That idea took hold, and a small group of people, among them people on this panel, worked for almost a year to make that idea a reality. We amassed a group of 65 writers, singers, dancers, drummers, media celebrities, people who knew Gwendolyn Brooks, people who were touched by his work, by her work, um, these people, over an entire day, took turns reading her work on June 7, 2012, which happens to be her birthday. We called it Brooks Day. Over a thousand people attended, and it was an amazing outpouring of love for her and her work. We've put on these Brooks Day celebrations every year since then with a very special one planned for this her 100th year, where there will be 100 individual presentations paying tribute to her. Gwendolyn Brooks died 17 years ago, uh, but her presence as a poet, as someone who gave generously of her time, her money, her encouragement is still felt not only in this country and throughout the world, but especially throughout Chicago. It's not unusual for our Brooks, Brooks Day Committee to meet in coffee shops on the south side of Chicago where someone will overhear our conversation and come up and, and tell us a story about the time they met Gwendolyn Brooks at a reading at their school, a time when they received some encouragement from her or were touched in some way by one of her poems. I'd like to ask everyone to imagine what you would do if you won the Pulitzer Prize. Perhaps in some way, you'd find a way to give back to others. Gwendolyn Brooks, after she won the Pulitzer Prize, gave back in some astounding ways. She was the Illinois Poet Laureate from 1998 to the year 2000. And during those years, one of the things she did was she invited children from Chicago, school children, from grades 1 through 12, to send her poems. She'd read the poems, pick about 30 of them, and put them in a book. Then, and she'd make sure that there was at least one from every grade. Then she would rent out a hall at the University of Chicago and invite each of these children to come and read their poem to an audience that included their parents, teachers, fellow students. These children had never had this kind of attention to their work before. Some of them, this was the first poem they'd ever written. Each winner would come up onto the stage, they'd read the poem, 
They'd say a little bit about why they like to write poetry because she asked them to do that. And then she'd receive, they would receive the book with her, with her poem in and an envelope with some cash. This was entirely funded by Gwendolyn Brooks. She did this every year for 30 years. Here's another example from among many. Gwendolyn Brooks approached the Guild Literary Complex to start an open mic poetry contest back in 1992. She wanted to encourage people to write poetry and to read it out loud. Well, and the Guild Complex continues to put this on. 24 years later, we still put on the Gwendolyn Brooks Open Mic Awards with the same cash prize of $500. These contests are pretty structured now, but in the early days, they were long, unwieldy affairs. Yeah, they were. There'd be a steady stream of open mic poets reading their work, and it would last three, three and a half, four hours. Gwendolyn Brooks would sit in the audience, and she'd listen to every single poem. And then, when a winner was selected by the audience, uh, she would walk up onto the stage, pull a checkbook out of her purse, and write the winner a check for $500. I have a personal experience I'd like to share, personal experience with Gwendolyn Brooks. Twenty years ago, as a very beginning poet, I entered the Gwendolyn Brooks Open Mic Awards. Uh, about an hour into the evening, it was my turn, I went, went up onto the stage, read my poem, sat back down, and as I was listening to the next poet, someone tapped me on the shoulder, handed me a note, and said, this is from Gwendolyn. I did not win the $500 prize that, that night, but the incur the... That note from Gwendolyn Brooks contained encouragement that has lasted much longer than $500 ever would have. I still have it. It's framed. It's on above my desk where I write. And I, when I look at it, to this day, I still feel her encouragement. The note said, you are unique and splendid, Gwendolyn. Today you're going to hear from three people with their own experiences and perspectives about Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, let me introduce them. First, there's Koresh Ali Lansana. Koresh teaches at the School of the Art Institute. He's, he has authored and edited 18 books of poetry, uh, essays in children's literature. Most recently, the best-selling Breakbeat Break Poets, uh, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip-Hop, and a book that was just released, and it's a beautiful book, Revise the Psalm, work celebrating the writing of Gwendolyn Brooks. Then we'll hear from Rosellen Brown. Rosellen has published 10 books, novels, short stories, poetry, and essays, including Civil Wars, Before and After, and Cora Fry's Pillow Book. She has received an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, a Janet Kafka Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. She teaches at the MFA program at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. And then finally, there is Nora Brooks-Blakely. Nora is a playwright, author, teacher, and director. She was founder and executive director of the much-loved Chocolate Chips Theater Company. She is founder and president of Brooks Permission, and she's also the daughter of Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, we'll start with presentations, then open it up for questions from the audience. Here's Koresh. Mm -hmm. 
Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for being here to celebrate Miss Brooks, um, to honor um, someone who I believe was one of the most important writers of the 20th century, um, and someone with whom I had the pleasure and, and privilege of being mentored by for the last decade uh, that she was with us. Um, I want to start by showing you a bit of this letter. If you can, if you can see it, we can try and make it a little larger. Um, but I would encourage you to move a little closer. Um, this is the actual jury report from the Poetry Committee of the Pulitzer Prize in 1950. Now, I think it's important for us to remember that not, Miss Brooks was the first black person to win the Pulitzer, right? Not poet, <laughs> first black human. Right in 1950, and that there were 37 years between Miss Brooks and Miss Rita Dove. Just think about what was happening in the country in those 37 years, right? Uh, many, many things. Um, but I want to just briefly go through this letter. You can um, access this letter on the Pulitzer Prize website. But this letter, I think, speaks in many ways to uh, our current state of politics and race and class and literature as well. Um, I should mention before we sort of go through this letter that when Miss Brooks received the call that she'd been awarded the Pulitzer Prize, um, she had a five-year-old, right, your brother, um, and the electricity was off in the house, right? It's real. It's real being an artist, right? It's real life. The next day, when the media came to interview her uh, about receiving the Pulitzer, somehow the community had found the switch to flip. <laughs> and the electricity was on, on the south side of Chicago in her home, to celebrate Miss Brooks, right? And I think about the metaphor of both of those things, that today... We are struggling to uh, get our voices out, to be heard, to, to make change. And that we are also the same folks who have to be responsible for finding the switch to flip, to turn on the lights for one another. Right? So this letter from 1950, um, written by, um, from the, the Poetry Committee, um, uh, Henry Seidel Canby, Alfred Krimborg, Louis Untermeyer. Um, to Dr. Uh, Dean Carl Ackerman from Columbia, from uh, the Pulitzer Prizes. Would you to look at the first paragraph? Can you scroll down a bit? Uh, the oh, second, right there, right there. That's fine. That right there, right. So just look at that paragraph. The finest book of poetry this year is very naturally the complete poems of Robert Frost, which summarizes his whole career for various good reasons. The committee feels it would be most unwise to give the award to this book unless no other worthy candidate was in sight, right? And then skipping down to that next paragraph, if the judges were to award the prize, this is uh, the prize literally to the best book of the year, the prize would have to be given to the complete poems of Robert Frost. As the title indicates, this is the cumulative work of the greatest living American poet, possibly the greatest poet living today. But, and it is an important but, Frost has received the award four times. And with the exception of a few added titles for the same poems. Okay, just, yeah, okay, just deal with that for a second. So they were considering giving him a fifth Pulitzer for the book that contains the four books for which he'd already received four Pulitzers, right? This is real, y'all, this is not, not make-believe. All right, so then just scroll down, Mike. 
to the next paragraph. Okay, stop. I think that's okay. There is another important contribution to poetry this year, which also deserves a special statement. Mr. William Carlos Williams has been steadily growing in stature and published in 1949 a book of selected poems and the first three sections of his long poem called Patterson. A number of Mr. Williams' briefer poems have already taken their place in anthologies, but he lacks self-criticism, and his total output so far is frequently distinguished by an extreme of obscurity. Okay, this is real, y'all. Okay, this is real. This is especially true of his long poems. There is every reason to believe that his new selected poems to be published in 1950 will be much more representative of what he can do and less full of failures. <laughs> right? Okay, let's go down and skip, if you would, Mike. Fortunately, that's fine. Fortunately, among the other books of poems submitted for an award is a volume of great originality, real distinction, and high value as a book as well as poetry. Some years ago, Gwendolyn Brooks, a Negro writer of unusual ability, published a street in Bronzeville which made a great impression on all its readers and had what is unusual for poetry today, a wide sale. In 1949, she published Annie Allen, a much better book, and indeed, in our opinion, the outstanding volume of the year, if you exclude Robert Frost. (laughs) No other Negro poet has written such poetry of her own race, of her own experiences, subjective and objective, and with no grievance or racial criticism as the purpose of her poetry. It is highly skillful and strong poetry come out of the heart, but rich with racial experience. And then this quote from Krimborg. Keep scrolling, Mike, please. A little more. That's great. A few years ago, Gwendolyn Brooks, the young Chicago poet, made her debut in book form with A Street in Bronzeville, a small Spoon River anthology of the Negro. This was followed last year by Annie Allen, an even finer volume which introduces further characters out of her Southside background with Annie herself as the central figure with her peregrinations from childhood through girlhood to womanhood. These notes, as the author modestly calls her very lyrics and ballads, are finally developed in a single short narrative, The Ennead, whose title deftly parodies The Ennead and whose intellectual sweep over common experience is not only brilliant but profound in its tragic and tragic comic implications. The book as a whole gives evidence that the poet firmly resisted temptations of special pleading, the bane of most social verse in our time. Her work is truly objective, never propagandistic, and above all, original. That's an actual document. That's an internal letter from the Poetry Committee sent to the Pulitzer folks. This is the document that awarded Miss Brooks the Pulitzer in 1950. It's remarkable, right? It's a remarkable thing. All right, I'm going to close with a short essay. And again, you can access this. Um, my good friend Major Jackson's writing a great essay on the letter that will be in the June issue of Poetry, uh, excuse me, of Poets and Writers. Um, the essay that I'm about to read 
um, will uh, be printed in the second anthology of Ms. Uh, about Miss Brooks that I've co-edited. This one is called The Whiskey of Our Discontent, Gwendolyn Brooks as Conscious and Change Agent. It'll be out this summer by Haymarket Books, and I have cards for that if you'd like. Um, and then this book revised the psalm work celebrating the writing of Gwendolyn Brooks that I co-edited with Sandra Jackson Poku is out now from Curbside Splendor. Feel free to pick it up. It's an outstanding book. All right, let's see if I can squeeze this in. One late spring afternoon in 1999, Miss Brooks called me at 7923 South Evans Avenue. Clearly distraught, she told me she needed to discuss something that had just happened and sought my opinion on the matter. I heard an anger and disbelief in her voice I had not known previously, but would unfortunately experience again. Miss Brooks was not only, as one of her publishers and first cultural son, Dr. Haki Matabudi, put it, the last of the great letter writers. She also kept everything she touched or considered touching, newspaper clippings, recipes, as well as correspondence, books, and hundreds of photographs. Her lesson plans and writing exercises were harbored on individual pages of notebook paper stacked one foot high, held together by a web of rubber bands. The aforementioned newspaper clippings possessed her handwritten commentary on every single article. Even her dictionary, now at Emory University, contains marginalia in her hand. In an effort to help Miss Brooks move to a Hyde Park apartment, Baba Haki hired a group of men and sent them over to the house at 74th and Evans. The new owner settled into the single-family home while Miss Brooks reveled in her new Lake Michigan view. Though unclear if it was the movers or the new owner who discovered the boxes in the basement, what is clear is that someone found a gold mine and made some money. The boxes were delivered to an undisclosed rare books dealer for appraisal and potential sale. This book dealer didn't engage in the business of asking questions. A value was placed on the items, and shortly thereafter, a portion of Miss Brooks's life was put on the market without her knowledge or consent. Quote, I just received a call from a book dealer representing the Bancroft Library at Berkeley. He offered me $10,000 for my own things, things I never intended for them or anyone to have. Not yet. The Bancroft Library is the primary special collections library of the University of California, Berkeley. Most writers and artists I know, myself included, would welcome invitation to be archived at the Bancroft Courage, they will buy the boxes regardless of whether or not I take the money. I think damn. I don't say damn, but I think it hard. Miss Brooks found out about this purchase accidentally. A friend, identity withheld, employed at UC Berkeley, called Miss Brooks to share her excitement about the archival items soon to be on their way west. Miss Brooks expressed she had no knowledge of this transaction. The friend then contacted the archivist at Berkeley at the Bancroft, who in turn informed the book dealer the purchase would not occur unless Miss Brooks was happy. The dealer contacted Miss Brooks and offered her a portion of the proceeds for the deal to be finalized. But Miss Brooks, to her last breath, was never happy about this transaction. The Bancroft discovered the materials available for acquisition via routine, legitimate channels. They did nothing wrong or illegal, to be clear. 
If I take the money, I'm offering consent and legitimizing the purchase. If I don't take the money, they still acquire my things through legitimate means. She sounded almost in tears. What do you think I should do? Her voice was dark, heavy with anguish. Ma'am, if the library is going to buy your items either way and there's no way to get them back, you should take the money. The words hurt like chewing glass. You think so? This is an awful situation, and I wish we could find the men who did this to you. But if the Bancroft is making the purchase regardless, you should probably take the money. I'm inclined to agree, she said. But I'm going to speak with Haki and Nora again. Thank you, Koresh. You're welcome, man. I'm so sorry. When that conversation occurred, Miss Brooks was only peripherally aware of the volume and scope of the items in those boxes. She was told they contained personal photographs, correspondence, and copies of poems. But in truth, according to a January 11, 2001 UC Berkeley press release, they contained much more. Quote, retrieved from a former Brooks home on the south side of Chicago. The collection now at UC Berkeley contains manuscripts of her poems and speeches, family photos, awards, weekly journals, clippings that reflect source material for poems, 50 years of correspondence with her publishers and letters. Library officials said the yet-to-be-cataloged 22 boxes of materials constitute a representative sample of her papers from the 1930s to 1980. Close quote. The letters mentioned above, again from the press release, quote, include letters between Brooks and poet art critic Ted Berrigan, author anthologist Arna Bontop, who helped lead the Harner Renaissance, and Robert Creeley of the Black Mountain Poets Group, as well as the late writer and Black Panther activist Eldridge Cleaver. Close quote. The press release later quotes Daphne Muse, then the advisor to the Bancroft's Libraries and African American Writers Collection. <coughs> as well as longtime friend of Miss Brooks, as stating, quote, she, Brooks, was most grateful we, grateful we had these documents. She said, you have my blessings to buy it, close quote. The Bancroft holdings were available for public consumption in 2001, shortly after Miss Brooks's death. That is some fascinating history. I'm afraid that mine is kind of non-history or anti-history. Um, this was advertised. We were advertised as people, all of whom knew Miss Brooks. But um, I have a slightly different story to tell, a very brief one. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be someone who hasn't had a lot of regrets in her life. But here is one of them. Um, my husband and I came to Chicago in 1995 just for a year. We were subletting an apartment, and it was um, I was not very connected with the literary community. It was only near the end of that year that somebody said to me, did you know that Miss Brooks lives in the other half of this building, Gwendolyn Brooks? I said, really? Uh, of course I knew her work. I knew nothing about her personally. And I thought, in spite of all the books that Mike was nice enough to name of mine and so on, in spite of the fact that I had been in Mississippi during civil rights times and so on, I thought, she's not going to want to know me. I did not knock on her door. I did not ring her bell. I was kind of like, you know, why would she want to pay any attention to me? And I never met her. This is one of my really yeah. great, great regrets because I didn't know, nobody told me that she was such a marvelously open, welcoming, mm -hmm. wonderful woman who would have talked to any stranger. She certainly would have talked to me. So there it is. <laughs> Non-history. 
So last week, um, I read an essay in Koresh's book about the impression that uh, Gwendolyn Brooks's great novel, Maud Martha, had made on a young Latino man. In his essay, the writer Manuel Munoz quoted James Baldwin, writing from what he calls the margin, about what it meant to be an American writer, uh, to be an American writer. Baldwin says, I wanted to find out in what way the specialness of my experience could be made to connect me with other people instead of dividing me from them. Now, those of you who have read it know, and those of you who haven't read it, you really must know that Maud Martha, which is the book that, he, that Munoz was writing about, is extremely specific. For example, Maud uh, is a dark girl whose sister is lighter, fairer in the eyes of the world. She grows up with kitchenettes, rent parties, works briefly as a domestic in the house of a ghastly white suburban woman, and so on. Not my experiences, not those of that young Latino student, Manuel Munoz. But the book is truly about the way in which our lives, all lives, without the current political implication of that phrase, how our lives can be savored in all their modesty with praise for the fragmentary pleasures that comprise them. I've taught the book a dozen times because I want all my students to experience and appreciate it. And I have never had a single student who could resist its gentle and sometimes furious voice. But to the poems, and what I really want to do today is just read you poems and not, not say too much about them. I don't intend to do a close analysis, but I want to read a few and savor them and point out just a few things to listen for. Um, and it's interesting when I think about it, when I was in school, when we thought about universality in writing, we were all told to look at Flannery O'Connor. She was Catholic. She wrote a great deal about that. And we were always instructed, you don't have to be Catholic. Like, do you remember the, remember the ad? And, well, maybe some of you hadn't seen it in the New York subways that used to have Levy's rye bread, and it said you don't have to be Jewish to like Levy's. Same thing. So it used to be Flannery O'Connor. I am making the case for Gwendolyn Brooks. First, our Miss Brooks is so good at longing, at yearning. Um, there are voices, again, very specific. They, they emerge from her character's experience, black experience, not so often written about in her time. But without discounting it, race is not their only subject. I want to read you a couple of poems about longing. One of them I'm not going to read because I won't have time, but you all probably know from a street in Bronzeville kitchenette, kitchenette building, which is about wanting to take a warm bath. Mm -hmm. If only those neighbors would get out of the bathroom. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, will <laughs> I will read you a marvelous poem um, called A Song in the Front Yard. And if there is a woman in this room who cannot identify with this, mm -hmm. I don't know where her head is. I've stayed in the front yard all my life. I want to peek at the back, where it's rough and untended and hungry weed grows. A girl gets sick of a rose. I want to go in the backyard now and maybe down the alley to where the charity children play. I want a good time today. They do some wonderful things. They have some wonderful fun. My mother sneers, but I say it's fine how they don't have to go in at quarter to nine. My mother, 
She tells me that Johnny May will grow up to be a bad woman, that George will be taken to jail soon or late on account of last winter he sold our back gate. But I say it's fine. Honest, I do. And I'd like to be a bad woman, too, and wear the brave stockings of night black lace and strut down the streets with paint on my face. And I remember once hearing Rita Dove I may have been at AWP, I don't remember where it was. She actually talked about the front of her house. Going out the front door represented propriety. Mm-hmm. Going out the back door into the backyard That's represented right. freedom. Right. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Uh, another one. Um, longing again. Yearning. This is um, hunchback girl thinks of heaven. My father... It is surely a blue place and straight, right, regular, where I shall find no need for scholarly nonchalance or looks a little to the left or guards upon the heart to halt love that runs without crookedness along its crooked corridors. My father, it is a planned place, surely, out of coils unscrewed, released, no more to be marvelous, I shall walk straightly through most proper halls, proper myself, princess of properness. She explains, and for some of us, what she explains may come as a revelation, for others as a confirmation. She uses with characteristic wit the apparent naivete of the nursery rhyme rhythms, ironically, set against very sophisticated subjects. And I'm going to read you Sadie and Maud. I'm sure that some of you know these poems, but it's, uh, it's wonderful to hear them again, I think. Um, wait a minute. I got it marked off, but I think my little thing fell off. Where is Sadie and Maud? Uh, page 8. Yeah. Maud went to college. Sadie stayed at home. Sadie scraped life with a fine-tooth comb. She didn't leave a tangle in. Her comb found every strand. Sadie was one of the livingest chits in all the land. Sadie bore two babies under her maiden name. Maud and Ma and Papa nearly died of shame. When Sadie said her last so long, her girl struck out from home. Sadie had left as heritage her fine-tooth comb. Maud, who went to college, is a thin brown mouse. She is living all alone in this old house. Sounds like a nursery rhyme. Surely is not. She plays complexity against straightforwardness, intricate sentence structure to contain honest and difficult emotion over again using the sound of patient explanation to probe sometimes intimate pain or pride. Specificity of experience becomes shared and universal. And I want to read you one of my very, very favorite poems called The Mother. Um, I was at Catholic University last night reading with a wonderful, kick-ass bunch of women reading poetry. And I was going to read this poem called The Mother, which is about abortion. And I decided that for the sake of my hosts, I would spare them that. <laughs> and I changed them. I read them the poem about wanting to go out the back. 
listen to the way Miss um, Brooks addresses uh, to us her re- her address to us her readers becomes in the middle of the poem a conversation with and then a confession to the aborted children that she's writing about. This is this is a difficult poem. It is incredibly complex, I think, and I think it is um, really magnificent. This is called The Mother. How am I doing on time? Okay. Abortions will not let you forget. You remember the children you got that you did not get. The damp, small pulps with a little or with no hair. The singers and workers that never handle the air. You will never neglect or beat them or silence or buy a sweet. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never leave them, controlling your luscious sigh, return for a snack of them with gobbling mother eye. I have heard in the voices of the wind the voices of my dim, killed children. I have contracted. I have eased my dim deers at the breasts they could never suck. I have said, sweets, if I sinned, if I seized your luck and your lives from your unfinished reach, if I stole your births and your names, your straight baby tears and your games, your stilted or lovely loves, your tumults, your marriages, aches, and your deaths, if I poisoned the beginnings of your breaths, Believe that even in my deliberateness, I was not deliberate. Though why should I whine, whine that the crime was other than mine? Since anyhow you are dead, or rather, or instead, you were never made. But that too, I am afraid, is faulty. Oh, what shall I say? How is the truth to be said? You were born, you had body, you died. It is just that you never giggled or planned or cried. Believe me, I loved you all. Believe me, I knew you, though faintly, and I loved, I loved you all. Um... Finally, and I don't really think I have time to read it because it is really long, The Lovers of the Poor, but I have to mention it. And those of you who have a book of uh, Gwendolyn Brooks really must read this. This is an extraordinary poem, but it is very long and complex, that describes, quotes, indicts, singes its subjects with unbridled contempt. It is possibly her angriest poem. It is about those who love the poor and come to sucker them and raise a little money but don't want to get too close to all that dirt and smell and swarthiness. She says, please pick us some people to visit who aren't too swarthy. It is possibly her angriest poem. It is also possibly her most effective. Mm -hmm. Yet even this one speaks about an attitude, complacency, self-satisfaction, um, the the um, that is born of distance, 
that is both extremely specific and yet, as we look around the world, is also a portrait of familiar and dangerous absence of understanding and empathy. I have to just add one more thing. I read yesterday about the man who was taking Jeff Sessions' place as a senator now that he is a different job. Mm-hmm. And he is a guy named Lucas Strange, which is a wonderful name, um, who belongs to some, what do they call it, white shoe law firm or white gloves law firm or something like that, who plays golf, who lives in the suburbs. And I thought, there it is. I don't even know if he loves the poor. Right. But it was so appalling that as one man gets kicked upstairs to a job that he does not deserve, right. this man who might at best be a lover of the poor is the one to take his place. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Surreal. I couldn't figure out how to ease into this subtly, so I'm just going with the uh, Massive shameless plug first. <laughs> so, um, well, she's your mother. So, <laughs> so uh, first of all, uh, yes, Creation mentioned uh, revising the song, which is wonderful. Whiskey of Our Discontent, which is coming out. Um, and also, um, Angela Jackson's biography will be coming out um, in uh, late May, early June. And uh, there's another book that's coming out that I'll mention later. And then, of course, there's, oops, there's this one. Okay, so this is Seasons, a Gwendolyn Brooks experience, Brooks Permissions, uh, our company, uh, I'm president, Cynthia Wall sitting out in the audience as the vice president, and we've been telling people that we have uh, been trying to birth this child since 2008, off and on. So there has been a delivery, and we are very excited. We took the four seasons of the year and looked at the themes connected to each of those seasons and went through my mother's work, poetry and prose, and selected the pieces that we thought were most effective in addressing those themes. We also have memories from different people, uh, a few family pictures, and the incredible artwork from Jan Spivey Gilchrist, who is an award-winning illustrator, um, having done approximately, uh, illustrated approximately 80 books. So, um, most of the things that I will refer to in, uh, in what I wanted to say are in, yes, this book. Okay. Uh, it's available. GwendolynBrooks.net is our website for books permissions. So that's GwendolynBrooks.net. Did I mention GwendolynBrooks.net? Okay. And uh, should in a couple of weeks be available on Amazon as well. But you should really check out GwendolynBrooks.net because you can see some more information about my mother, etc. So the other thing that I have noticed is um, over the past few weeks and leading into uh, this wonderful centennial is that um, 
uh, there's a legend beginning to build. And so I thought that I would first address what I'm referring to as a glossary of Gwen. And because there are some things that need to be a little clarified, some words and terms that are being attached to her that may or may not be correct. So um, first of all, so it's separating the legend from her own self-interpretation. So, uh, first of all, is the word is the word feminist. I don't think Mama would ever have had any problem being called a feminist. I think that if somebody had said that to her, she would have agreed that she had the appropriate traits, actions, and qualities. But I don't ever remember, and Croatia and I were talking about this, I don't ever remember her actually using the word in connection with herself. So um, to, uh, to quote from something that she said uh, about we real cool when they um, banned her book for the phrase Jazz June because they thought it was a sexual reference and she said that that was not her intent but if that interpretation helped anybody that they, you know, that they were fine, they could go ahead and use it. Civil rights icon she has been defined as. Um, I think that mama would just look at you in puzzlement if, um, because she would not have defined herself in such a way. Her icons, her civil rights icons, people who were trying to get rights for other people, uh, freedom for other people, were people like Malcolm X, you know, uh, Martin, Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., Paul Robeson, uh, Harriet, Harriet Tubman, Jane Addams, um, Angela Davis. Those were the people that she would have looked at in that light. I think that there's a lot of we, that we can look at and say, oh, okay, I can see why you would now consider her to be a civil rights icon. But I think that um, certainly in Paul Robeson, those last lines that, uh, that she uses, that we are each other's harvest, we are each other's business, we are each other's magnitude and bond certainly speaks as a message to the uh, as a message to the world but i think that your poetry can be your polemics or your poetry can paint that's not to say that either one is better or worse than the other. They're both important. I think that Mama, I think that Mama did both. Um, I think that Sermon on the Warpland and Black Love are certainly um, examples of what might fall into the more polemics category. But I think that fundamentally, although she definitely had messages, I think that fundamentally a significant amount of her work was painting, was creating the pictures, the images of people in, uh, in Lovers of the Poor. Um, she's not saying anything that directly says these are horrible people or that these are people who shouldn't be like this or who th should think differently or whatever. She paints a picture of the people that came to the, the that came to these buildings. She paints a picture of the people who lived in the buildings. And then it is up to you to be able to take those paintings 
and to look at them and make your decisions about just what position you might take from there, what you think she might take from there. So uh, pieces like that. Um, Major Jackson read Beverly Hills, Chicago yesterday. And, um, and again, it's two people in a car who are driving through a very well-off neighborhood in, in the Chicago area. And that, uh, and so there's nothing about, oh, we are so poor, we are so, it's so, it's just so bad, oh, it's, it's really rough, you know, so it's, it's the understanding of the, of the comparison between what they're seeing, what they imagine these people's lives to be like, and what they see in their own. So, um, so as far as the civil rights icon, um, did she present images that encourage other people, hopefully, to think and to move forward and to uh, take their own steps to address rights and wrongs? Definitely. Was she outside marching with uh, with a picket sign? No, not so much. Okay, so um, uh, also I think that uh, an example of that is one piece that you can identify either as polemic or painted picture, but it speaks to uh, Brooks Permissions, our vision of um, our mission statement, which is demonstrating the continued relevance of Gwendolyn Brooks of the 21st century and go with it. Thank you. (laughs) So, um, so Cynthia was very um, um, committed to making sure that that was part of it. And I think, yes, why stop at the 21st? Let's keep going, 22nd century and so forth. So um, this, uh, this piece is called Patrick Bowie of Cabrini Green. And it's one of the pieces that I really point to when um, I say uh, something about this continued relevance. What is devout is never to forget, never to shell the value and the beauty. Patrick, vivid, valid, lyrical, we cannot reach, we cannot touch the radiant richness that was Patrick, cannot be reached again, cannot be hugged, cannot be visited. What is devout is never to forget that he was with us for a little while. Our splendor, our creative spirit, our sparkling contribution, our flash of influence interrupted, our interrupted man. And I think if that doesn't speak to a lot of what's been happening, especially over the past few years, although we know it's been happening for decades, um, centuries, but... um, I think that, that that speaks to a lot of what we're looking at with um, with uh, Trayvon, Laquan, and so many so many other people. So, um, wrapping up the glossary of uh, of Gwen, humble and genius. Hmm. Well, <laughs> only a daughter can do that. <laughs> the rest of us will get struck down by lightning. <laughs> 
But the thing is that she wasn't humble, and it doesn't mean that she was arrogant or anything like that. It was that she had a sense of place. I looked up uh, humble, and one of the synonyms is diffident. And it said a um, let's say, lacking confidence in one's own ability, worth, or fitness, timid, shy, restrained or reserved in manner, conduct, etc. And I was like, not so much. <laughs> so I looked at confident. And it said, sure of oneself, having no uncertainty about one's own abilities, correct, um, correctness, and successfulness. And I went, yeah, that's <laughs> that one. So uh, she was... Uh, she understood a sense of place, a sense of perspective. And um, so... She was not someone who um, who under uh, who overassessed herself. But let's be clear: if you underassessed her, or if you uh, <laughs> if you underassessed her, or had uh, something, or uh, or she felt a wrong needed to be righted, then um, then she would be very clear. Mm-hmm. And so, in the exa- one example is John H. Johnson uh, of uh, Johnson Publishing Company, Ebony Magazine, Jet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when they first built their beautiful building uh, downtown, and there was um, a wonderful presentation for it. And she was there to read a poem and to talk about the wonderfulness of it. And so but several people, including the mayor, had been referring to him as Johnny. And so when um, my mother got up, she said, well, the mayor called, called you Johnny. Somebody else called you Johnny. So, Johnny, this is a really exciting time. <laughs> so, um, just and, and the last thing about the about the glossary of Gwen is um, African American. Okay, um, homie didn't play that. <laughs> she did not refer to herself as African American. She did not think that that was the correct term. And uh, she always referred to herself as black and with capitalizing the B. As she mentions in, in Black Love about blacks from everywhere, from all over the different, all over the world. And so it is not, you know, so that African-American is very specific. And so when she said black, she was being inclusive. And so I thought, and I've mentioned this to some people, that um, that it would be nice if people who are honoring her in the centennial might first honor her by identifying her the way she wanted to be identified. And so if anybody is still confused about that, she wrote a poem called Kojo. I am a black. According to my teachers, I am now an African American. They call me out of my name. Black is an open umbrella. I am black and a black forever. I am one of the blacks. We are here 
We are there. We occur in Brazil, in Nigeria, Ghana, in Botswana, Tanzania, in Kenya, in Russia, Australia, in Haiti, Soweto, in Grenada, in Cuba, in Panama, Libya, in England, and Italy, France. We are graces in any places. So that's not... Sorry about that. I am black and a black forever. I am other than hyphenation. I say proudly, my people. I say proudly, our people. Our people do not disdain to eat yams or melons or grits or to put peanut butter in stew. And she would always pause here and say that that was really good. (laughs) I am Kojo. In West Africa, Kojo means unconquerable. My parents named me the seventh day from my birth in black spirit, black faith, black communion. I am Kojo. I am a black and I capitalize my name. Do not call me out of my name. So I think we're all clear now. <laughs> okay. Uh, there was one thing. It runs about four minutes. Okay. Uh, some time ago, while Mama was still with us, I wrote this description of Mama called Three-Way Mirror. And so in the commitment to trying to make this year what uh, I've been referring to as 360 degrees of Gwendolyn Brooks, that you have more of a sense of her than strictly the poem on the page. Not that those are not wonderful. Not that that is not important, but an opportunity to get a little bit more of a sense. And uh, so it says, what's it like having Gwendolyn Brooks for a mother is the often asked question. I don't know. I never had another mother to compare her to is the semi-flip reply. And yet, even without an opportunity for comparison shopping, there are differences. Most people get to see their mothers as well as mothers. They may be peripherally aware of a career she has out there, but it doesn't really connect with their corner of reality. I got to see Mama in many different guises. Mama as Madwoman. Many people saw Gwendolyn Brooks as a shy, retiring, quiet sort of person. As her daughter, I knew the truth and will now expose it. (laughs) Miss Brooks watched soap operas. Yes, she did. And usually didn't answer her phone while they were on. One time I called and she said, all my children and hung up. (laughs) As I was growing up, my mother would dance through the house, hands high over her head to the sounds of Errol Garner on television. She loved to play the piano and would beat out Duke Ellington songs like Mood Indigo or Solitude while I draped myself over the piano vamp style and sang. This quiet person was the one who gossiped and giggled with me on the phone, often for two or three hours at a time, talking about everything from the cataclysmic to the comic. The phone was not her only avenue of communication, however. My mother was a clipaholic. She would cut clippings out of newspapers by the truckload. When I was a child, I used to find these clippings attached to my bedroom mirror. After I moved away from home, she would collect bundles of them that would lie in wait on the living room radiator until I came over. 
In later years, she started mailing me clippings from out-of-town newspapers while she was on the road. I finally had to face facts. If I took up residence on the moon, the next shuttle would contain clippings from my mother. Mama as midwife. Gwendolyn Brooks had always been interested in assisting in the birth and development of new writers. In the 60s, she was a focal point for most of the young black writers in Chicago and across the country. Our house became a regular meeting place and think tank. She thrived on the informal sessions she had on myriad college campuses, talking not only about literature, but also the world. Her mail was filled with the letters of people she touched. She was a firm believer in the phrase, give till it hurts. For years, she went around the country giving grants to individual students, offering awards, and even creating contests at schools. My father and I started calling her Our Lady of the Open Mouth because of the numerous times she got excited about an idea or a person and volunteered her funds. Most important of all, however, was her effect on children. Through the schools she visited and the Illinois Poet Laureate Awards which she created, Every year, hundreds of poems poured in from elementary and high school students all over the state over 30 years. She alone judged the poems and paid for the awards out of her own pocket. Annually, the winners got awards of $100 each, but she got an award too, the up-faced excitement of parents and children alike. Last, Rama as Mapper. More than anything else, though, my mother was a mapper. She delineated and defined the scenery of her now. Her words are a mere reflection of the aroundness. Her poetic people are still friends and acquaintances that command instant recognition. You say, I know Big Bertha, Pepita, and Nerissa. You say, I feel for the near Johannesburg boy. You say, I've been that crazy woman. You say, Lincoln West was a friend of mine. Gwendolyn Brooks introduced and shared experiences. When she said, the only sanity is a cup of teeth, tea, you recognized a truth. Little girls' songs, the grayed in and grayness of the day-to-day, animals grazing, computers, the fact that we are each other's business, and the need to conduct our blooming in the noise and whip of the whirlwind. These are all entrances to the lives of people you might otherwise never know. Gwendolyn, whether as manic parent, literary midwife, or life mapper, open places and people, new doorways and mind paths. And after all, isn't that what a mother is supposed to do? So we've got a few minutes. Uh, any questions from the audience? Yes. Thank you. Uh, I can uh, I grew up in Evanston, so you probably know. And I would say I remember District 65, I was one of those students that submitted a poem. Oh, oh great. <laughs> 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 Other questions? 
Yes. Um, do you know, can we buy that book in the in the big room? Um, it's not in the bookstore uh, here, but you can uh, you can order it on GwendolynBooks.net. <laughs> Is your book there? Um, yeah, Revise the Psalm is at the curbside. This book is at the curbside Splendor booth, um, which I think is 250, something like that. But this is at the curbside Splendor booth uh, currently. Sir? I had the uh, pleasure of the honor of meeting your mother and So, Lisa, just to make sure we, we have it, uh, uh, you're asking how to process the f- uh, fact that this is the uh, 100th uh, anniversary, that all of this attention is gone, uh, is being given to Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, and uh, is it uh, how does it strike us or, or Nora or um, is it? Uh, did we ever expect that this would happen? Yeah, she's okay. saying yes. Okay, okay. Nora. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I'm, obviously I'm not the most objective person on the on, on the panel, uh, but I think that it is well deserved. I think also that my mother was a person who was not really into a lot of. Visibility. She didn't necessarily hide from it, but she hated having her picture taken. She hated being on video. And so a lot of writers that have come up during her time and since her time uh, who have been... Uh, so, so um, Toni Morrison or Maya Angelou or uh, people who were much more open to being visible on television, et cetera, and so forth, I think are probably more firmly into the um, the literary zeitgeist of. Uh, and so, I think that this centennial, I think, will really help. To, to clarify, as a friend of ours says, clarify the vision as to just what she meant and means 
to uh, to literature by whatever category you choose: American literature, world literature, black literature, women's literature, almost any any category. And the people and the uh, the people who have been in her classes, the people who the the poets who have been impacted by her, they know. But I think that it's going to be very important this year for a lot more people to be clear. Right. Yeah, very good. There's a hand in the back. Yes, there's a hand in the back. Because I was going to say, yeah, we need <laughs> several people need to answer this. Um, but um, certainly, one of the poets was was Emily Dickinson. Um, also, Langston Hughes, who later became a friend. Um, and uh, but the the short answer, and uh, thank you, Courage, because he's going to give you other examples. But uh, the short answer is everybody and everything. Mm-hmm. My mother read everything right. you know from uh from great books of literature and history to tv guide and as courage mentioned she wrote in all of them she made comments in all of them <laughs> yeah. so um so so that's uh, that i think that's that that's the best answer i can yeah. think of right now miss brooks was in conversation with everything she absorbed or consumed right so um, she was in conversation with all my children, right? Um, you know, like black folks talking back to the movie at the movie theater. I mean, she was in conversation with everything that she consumed, and she consumed everything. So newspapers, uh, television, magazines. Uh, but in terms of poets, um, Nora mentioned Emily Dickinson for sure. Um, she loved Frost. Uh, she was definitely influenced by some of the romantic poets, um, uh, Hopkins, uh, Coleridge, um, Wadsworth, um, and of course Whitman. Whitman was a huge influence. And I should also add um, that she was also in post-67, when I call her post-Fisk period, mm-hmm. um, she was also uh, insp- uh, inspired by uh, a lot of the younger right. uh, a lot of the younger writers. Uh, some of the people that, uh, that came to the workshop that ended up being at our house. So, Haki Matabuti, formerly Don Lee, um, uh, Walter Bradford, uh, right. Carolyn Rogers, you know, Yahari Amini, you know, right. so, so a lot of people and some of the people who um, who lived in other cities, Nikki Giovanni would come in mm-hmm. to the workshops when she was in Chicago. Uh, so a lot, a lot of different people in that uh, started coming out in the '60s and '70s and '80s and so forth as well. You see, yes. Hi, Brenda. Go ahead.
Gwendolyn Brooks was one of the earlier writers who was uh, one of our keynote speakers at the conference. Um, the Center for Black Literature is modeled after the Gwendolyn Brooks Center for Black Literature and Creative Writing um, at Chicago State. But I wanted to um, share that I, I, we're always talking as, as someone who teaches American literature and African American literature, we're always talking about how do we expand canon. And there's so many people who just do not know mm -hmm. about the books. They think about the one poem. Mm -hmm. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing these books come out and, and just seeing this conversation continue. I am actually speaking uh, about Gwendolyn Books at a conference that the, Nas the National Black Writers Conference is having, a satellite conference at the Multicultural Conference at Sacramento State on February 25th, and we have a panel and we're going to be talking about Gwendolyn Books there. So that's a way of expanding the conversation. And also at Megaverse College, our symposium this year is focusing on Alice Brooks and Koresh. Will be there. The keynote speaker is Haki Mahabudi. We have the poets, uh, and we have Angela Jackson and uh, Marilyn Nelson. Uh, Angela Jackson, yes, Marilyn Nelson and Nicole Seeley will be there. We'll have, um, we did a call for papers. We'll have people talking about the work. We'll have readings, we'll have dramatic, um, dramatic readings, and a discussion of people who know her. So if you're in the New York area, on um, Thanks, Brenda. And I, I see your hand up, sis. I just want to say briefly before we go to you that our Miss Brooks 100, we are right, we have program partners all across the country. If you're interested at your institution and in producing the kind of event that you'd like to see happen regarding Miss Brooks, her work, and aspect of her legacy. Um, please see me. We have a we have a, a website. We have a promotional team, and we are program partners again all over the country. It's uh, GwendolynBrooks100.org is the website, and I can give you a card if you're interested in putting something together um, on her work or her life at your home institution. Please do. Right, it's growing nationally, and it don't cost nothing if you already have the space. It's just getting some folks to come and talk about her work. <laughs> Any other questions? While you're contemplating other questions, I just wanted to speak to what several people have been saying. And that is that um, I've coined the phrase centennial soldiers. And so if you feel that there is a lack of, of knowledge about Gwendolyn Brooks, if you share that concern, then um, you can elect yourself as a centennial soldier. Put it. Um, put a quote of hers at the at the end of at the end of your email. Um, uh, find out about events. Uh, pick up a book. Get a book for some. Get a book for somebody else. Um, and pass and pass it on to them. Uh, a student. Go uh, if you're involved in a university or a high school or an elementary school, and they're not talking about Gwendolyn Brooks and their curriculum. Ask them why. So there are many, many, you know, put her name out in poems, uh, 
Okay, I, I want to be very careful about the way I phrase this because Cynthia will bite me otherwise if I don't phrase this correctly. Um, on your independent Facebook pages, if you would like to share a poem of Mama's and pass it on, you can. If you are, however, a college, a university, a high school or anything, you have to get that licensed. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to be clear before somebody ran up here, Cynthia, and hit me in the head. So, um, but yes, so, I mean, but there are countless ways and I'm sure that, uh, so many creative people that you can come up with new and different ways just to, to spread the word. So, yes. Um, I think we're about at time. So thank you all for coming and, um, spread the word. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please feel free to visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.